Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. And today we're having part two, another hour with Bill Gwaltney, a gentleman who has a storied career with National Park Service. And today we're going to learn more about a late career move to ABMC, the American Battle Monuments Commission in Paris, France. You know what it's like to live in Hawaii, and uh, services here are varied. We we finally yes, they are a Starlink satellite dish, and suddenly we can stream movies and all sorts of things. And we're watching a lot of historical fiction, and uh, love some of it. Don't love some of it, as you mentioned, the Bridgerton effect that sometimes they get so artistic with it it's no longer really historical in any real way and uh, i'm just aware that when you get involved with hollywood or with create creative projects like that that the creative side is more important sometimes to the director or the producer than the accuracy or or whatever well i can tell you a quick story about the time i tried to be the technical advisor for the movie Buffalo Soldiers that was that that had um, Danny Glover. So I got to meet Danny Glover and and a nice man, and I got invited to be the technical advisor for that film Buffalo Soldiers. Well, you know when it starts out, they're playing Indian music. It's off of a sitar. Mm -hmm. You can tell right away that they kind of missed the boat. Well, there was a couple of scenes that, that I just said, what are you people thinking? One scene where they're in a defense, these Buffalo soldiers in a sort of a defensive circle and the guns are bristling to the outside and an Apache comes in on a horse and jumps the horse and lands in the middle of the circle. And they all turn and fire and kill the Indian guy. And I said to the producer, you just televised for the first time ever a circular firing squad. They had these guys making coffee and all of a sudden there's a shower of arrows. And I said, first of all, it's 1880 something. The Apaches had plenty of rifles. Nobody's using arrows anymore. Worse, they were poison arrows. The Paiute sometimes used poison arrows. The Apaches never did. But even worse, the arrows were three inches long, the whole arrow. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, you guys do understand that to fire a three-inch arrow, you have to have a four-inch bow. And they went, they just didn't think. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fun to do these things, but it's maddening because they're just, their brains are turned off. Well, we, we recently watched The Last Kingdom, which is about the uh vikings in great britain during 800s uh the late 9th right. early 10th century and i think the interesting thing was they stayed uh fairly accurate with the historical material that's available and then right, right. fictional things uh we it caused us to read up a lot about that time period and the actual historical figures in their their stories and uh, to me, that's that's the driver for historical fiction. Light my light, make people learn more about the people and the time. You know, I I think that's brilliant, and 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 I think that 
we sometimes people go no further than than Wikipedia or Google. Um, they don't dig deeper. They don't they don't think about um, archives and libraries and repositories. And and of course, history is always more complicated than you might imagine, and usually more complicated than you can imagine. Uh, my old pal, you know, Kim Sikoriak likes to say interpretation is not rocket science. It's much more complicated than that. And we often do so in the name of recreation. And we often confuse recreation with historical recreation. Yeah. And the words look exactly the same. But, but you know, we are paid to be both inspirational and help people be aspirational. And we often don't take it nearly as seriously as we should um, because we try to keep it in the fun zone. Well, you know, there's nothing fun about enslavement. There was nothing fun about the Civil War. Um, Whole-scale organized death, that's just not fun. But we, we tend to go there because, you know, we're going to make people want to come to the program. Well, it's probably five people come to a program prepared to understand what you're talking about than 50 people and, and, you know, and tell Civil War jokes. It's just there's there's an awkwardness there that's not in the, the visitor, but in us as well. We have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah, we've done quite a bit of training in Rwanda and we've led eco-tours there and part of what we do if we take people there is take them first to the memorial museum to the genocide because we think before you go meet the average day Rwandan if they're over 35 years old they remember the genocide 1994 yeah. and yeah. Uh, it it has a deep kind of uh potential for infliction of pain if you ask personal questions that maybe aren't where you should be going. And and right. yet Americans converse very openly with people often. And we just want everyone to know kind of what the folks that you're going to talk to have been through. And and by the way, a, a British uh organization funded and hired the museum planning done the interpretive planning and did a remarkable job because it's handled in a very sensitive manner uh from talking to rwandans they respect the way it was treated and we certainly respect the way it was treated and uh but it's sobering it I, is and, and and sober soberness is kind of part of our job description I know you don't get back to the mainland much, but if ever you have the opportunity to go to Montgomery, Alabama, I would highly suggest the Justice Institute. They have four moving parts in that relatively small town. One is their headquarters, and they have a stage there, a wonderful bookstore. But this is founded by a guy named Brian Stevenson, and there's a movie about him and his life called Just Mercy. And I don't know if you've seen it, but you certainly can see it on one of the streaming services. Um, a brilliant lawyer from the North moves South and tries to sort of continue the work of people like Dr. King and 
fairly recent information, specifically getting innocent people out of prison and off of death row. Well, they've got not only the headquarters, and every day, one of their lawyers is assigned to come out and, and three, four times a day, talk to the visiting public. This is who we are. This is what we do. I'm a real lawyer. I'm doing real legal work. And this is the kind of stuff I'm working on without breaking any confidences. Then they have this absolutely remarkable square city block, which they've landscaped. And you enter after going past this uh, you know, monument to the resilience of enslaved peoples, you start to see these eight foot long, three foot wide core 10 steel boxes. And they have in the name and name of a person and the date of their lynching. It goes from 1870, 1865 to 1955. And sometimes you're walking past them. Sometimes they're suspended above you. Sometimes they're, they're vertical. Sometimes they're horizontal. And you just can't believe what you're seeing. And then you come out the other side. And there's another almost a, a warehouse of replicas of the, the same boxes you've already seen. And it's got these things have the name of the person, the date of their their murder and the county and state in which they were murdered. If you go outside, there are replicas of all of those and you ask, what? why do you have them twice? If you are the mayor of Fort Collins, Colorado, for instance, and there was a lynching in Fort Collins, you can come with a truck and take that box home to Fort Collins as long as you display it publicly. So you are now tied to this institution. There's also the Legacy Museum, which is a museum about, that connects the dots between slavery and mass incarceration through the 13th Amendment. Um, and it's in a former slave pen. Freedom Riders, National Park there, there's um, other, other things to see related to the civil rights struggle. But this Equal Justice Initiative Center with four moving parts is absolutely stunning and they've done it without government money, so far as I can tell. Well, I had a conversation recently with Shelton Johnson, who interprets the Buffalo Soldiers in Yosemite. And he talked about, well, when I first went to work in parks, I looked around, I wasn't seeing African-American visitors. And for the most part, I wasn't seen in, among my fellow employees, many African-Americans. Um, you and I once took a, a trip that I remember really well. I suspect... For you, it was routine because you were doing a lot of that kind of thing. And for me, it was unique. Uh, we went to Tuskegee Institute and Alabama State University, and you actually had supposed instant hiring authority to hire park rangers that represent minority groups like African-Americans. Right. right. Tuskegee, we happened to be at a career fair and I remember it too well because they set us up next to Xerox and Microsoft. And we're talking to these young people who are engineers and biologists and science degree from a very prestigious university and they're graduating. And we're trying to explain that a park ranger job is romantic, rewarding, uh, important, important, and 
we're doing it between people who are saying, and start with us and we pay 75,000 a year and you're go also going to be doing something important. And it was quite a challenge. I, I, I think when we got back, you, you told me later that you helped one young man at Alabama State University get a position, but you had mentioned that there were some barriers. It, it wasn't as simple as find somebody who would like to be a park ranger and hand them a job. No, sadly, I mean, I, I was very proud to be able to do diversity recruitment, hiring, and, and that kind of work for, for a decade, but it was much more complicated because, uh, okay, um, I can tell you a story from my own past. And I told my dad I was going to be a national park ranger. He said these words. He said, you know, boy, there are a lot of trees in those woods and rope is cheap. Oh, boy. He was talking about lynching and racial violence. So there is an entire set of issues connected to that and something that is a very hard reality. If you were to look at a map of where all the national parks are, for instance, and then overlay it with a map from the Southern Poverty Law Center as to where all of the hate groups are located, there is an amazing overlap in terms of proximity. Um, it's sort of like, you know, worms under logs. They, they want to be where there's no light and no, and no people. Yeah. So there is that, but also a lot of these uh, universities that serve historically diverse groups do try to go for those jobs that pay well, that have prestige. Um, park service and, and state parks and other land management agencies don't have that same cachet with, with different communities of color. We haven't always been there to be seen. We always haven't been there to, to see. Um, and we don't always think about those other issues. Um, what's housing going to be like? What is uh, food acquisition going to be like? What is getting your hair done? If you, you prefer your hair done in a certain style and can't have it done, um, if that affects your ability to see yourself as a full human being, um, what is the relationship going to be with law enforcement? If law enforcement is sort of is, is you know, pre-established to sort of judge people based on color as opposed to character, there's a lot of things. And one of the things I tried to do was to engage people like the Rotary Club and the Lions Club to, to adopt a diverse hire and and in, enmesh them in the community. You just can't expect people to work eight or 10 hours a day and go home and stare at the ceiling. You've got to find ways to make it work. And there's so many more parts to that. And many parks are so single focused, they really don't think they have the time to do those things. They've never had to be that kind of supervisor before. But that's the kind of, of supervisor, mentor, and coach that is needed. Sadly, too, there were plenty of tough stories. At one park, we had a, a diverse hire, work a successful season, time to go back home to go back to college. The chief ranger took them to the, the nearest town to go to the, the bus station to get on the bus. And the bus station attendant refused to sell that person a ticket. 
the chief ranger who happened to be a, a female and was carrying, wearing her protective equipment, you know, including a, a sidearm, said, I'm afraid you are going to sell this person a ticket or you'll be hearing from the mayor. And so a ticket wasn't sold, but there are many issues that have to be considered before real change can be made. And, you know, the other thing is, you mentioned this, uh, is that if Xerox pays 75,000 and the Park Service pays 45, uh, you can only expect people are gonna go for the big money first. They've spent four years. They probably have had their parents or grandparents or other people contributing to their their, their financial costs to be in college or university. They they want to get that money back. So it's it's tough, and we just we haven't taken the time to to get children of color into the parks. We haven't taken the time to get families of color into the parks. And you know the most the best indicator of whether you will continue to use parks as an adult is whether or not you did as a child. Yeah. So we just can't sort of drop people into, you know, a, a Martian landscape and hope that things work out okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I remember a conversation with uh, California State Parks about some of the people saying, well, we, we get Hispanic visitors, but they don't go on our hikes. They don't come to the campfire program. They tend to have a family party under the, big tree at the campground. And my admonition is always, it doesn't matter how people use the park, if they value it and they're bringing their children there. And uh, I I heard a, a ranger at a at ranger skills class in Grand Canyon say, really frustrates me that people come through on a bus and they get off the bus and they take a picture and they're there 15 minutes, they get back on the bus and they leave and they didn't hike Bright Angel Trail or Desert View Trail. I'm going, you know, to have six or eight million people do that a year, you're building advocacy for the park system. And if you get all of those people to go down Bright Angel Trail, it's no longer a wilderness trail. It's a... Exactly. Subway. Well, you know, it, when I was at Rocky Mountain National Park, that the very thing that you talked about relative to Latino families... Uh, we were starting to see a pretty impressive use uh, on Sundays in particular after church um, in some of our picnic areas. And so I came up with a little program called Bienvenidos. And what we did is we sent a law enforcement ranger who typically didn't speak Spanish with an interpretive ranger who did speak Spanish. And we would just walk around the campsite and often people would freeze. They would literally freeze because the park service uniforms have been copied to a large extent by the U.S. Border Patrol. Huh. We didn't care if people had a green card. That wasn't our interest. Our interest was, we're glad you're here. We hope you'll enjoy the resource and we'll hope that you'll help us take care of it. So we went around and spent a lot of time chatting with people in Spanish. And you know, when you, when you meet visitors in a park, you're really not supposed to accept their food or drink. We drank a lot of Coca-Cola years because it was how you met people and yeah. and and we had a junior ranger program pamphlet in spanish now the kids spoke english probably better than you or i do they shared it with the aunties and the grandmothers and the grandfathers and other people who didn't speak english so those values 
and those requests for resource protection, picking up litter, those were transmitted to all of the people who came in, in those family groups. And we had a tremendous success, we felt, in helping to protect the resource and to welcome people to the park, which was our job. And people thought, wow, how'd you think of that? It was not that hard to figure out. There's an opportunity here, let's take it. And it cost very little. These, we didn't have to go anywhere. We didn't have to travel any distance. Now, I will say that also at Rocky Mountain National Park, I tried these, because it's only what, an hour and a half, an hour and 15 minutes from urban Denver, I tried to get to take our rangers to Denver to meet with different community groups in urban areas, often communities of color. And I faced some real pushback. Yeah. Um, you know, Denver was this hellhole, and I'll be raped and murdered. And oh my gosh, it was a big mess. So I literally had to reach out to my colleague from law enforcement and I sent my interpretive ranger in a in a patrol car with a law enforcement ranger to Denver. Denver is not, you know the evil hellhole that people made it out to be. And we ended up with some successes, but people couldn't envision themselves of being of value to communities of color. One of the, one of the rangers said to me, um, as a white female, I have nothing to offer these people. I said, look out the window. That's Long's Peak. Let's start with that. So getting people to get their head in the right place is really tough. And just because you put on a hat and a badge doesn't change your heart. Yeah, I think the challenges of this are still there. Do you see a difference when you go to the parks? Are we getting more? I think that there is more of a nod of the head. I'm not always convinced how authentic it is. But I, I think I see us going forward. But it's always the the undertow. It's not the the calm water on top. It's the it's the undertow underneath that you have to think about. Um, and of course, Americans are becoming more and more polarized. People feel like they have to take positions on things. Um, you know, parks should never be seen as a zero sum gain. Somebody else shows up, it lessens my experience. I'm not sure that that's even a little bit accurate. No, I don't think it is. I always hope that at the schools, at the universities, that we're doing a better job of, I mean, young people simply don't see the the barriers that older people tend to see. They haven't had the experience right. refused service somewhere or abused or even not allowed in. And uh, I'm really aware watching our grandson who just, graduated law school in Washington, D.C. at American University. Nice. His friends, both growing up and in college, have been a much more diverse set than uh, would have been true at earlier times. And you hope those endure, those values endure, that, you know, that people take it into the future and we uh, we find ways to integrate all people into, especially the national... Heard you say it, and I heard Shelton say it. These belong to every American, not to absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, um, my friend Alan Spears from the National Parks Conservation Association 
uh, has rather boldly had this to say. He said that national parks are not America's best idea. Democracy, participatory democracy is America's best idea of which national parks are a great example. So yeah, but, but I think it, it also means that people in interpretation, people in parks management have to think deeply and often about what these places mean and ought to mean and what democracy means and, and what our history suggests in terms of where we need to go and where we need to, 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 make, a, to make a stand. Um, we're pretty willing to make, to negotiate the past, the present, and the future. Frederick Douglass said the same thing a hundred years ago and more, and he's still right. Um, what, what is an American? We still wrestle with that question. Well, I would say that, um, just watching you and your career, you've done a lot to, to help us do better with all of this, but it, it's a journey for a lot of people for a very long time. It, it, the journey's not over. Um, I was well. You know, somebody somebody I know lately uh, quoted somebody. I can't remember who they were quoting, but they said that America is not broken; it is just unfinished. Yeah, I think that's which, a, which is a great turn of a phrase. But I, I was I got to over years I've got to uh, spend time with Mr. Bob Stanton, the former director of the National Park Service. Um, I was after leaving the Park Service to go to France. I was in a position to say, you know, Mr. Stanton, uh, I don't know you all that well, but I have a spare guest room in Paris. How'd you like to come for a visit? And he came, brought his wife, Janet, and we've been great friends ever since. But one of the things, the conversations that he and I have had is that being a park ranger means that you are in some manner a professional American. You have to think about things like the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Supreme Court, the, the three aspects of government, um, the, you know, the hit, uh, history as felt history, as opposed to just sort of uh, imagined history. And, and I think he, you know, he was in violent agreement that kind of work means you're an American in a little different way than many. Yeah, you represent the ideals of the American experiment, if you will. And exactly. And as as I see in your quote, what's the quote you put on every email? Well, it's it's from um, a South American um, author and and poet Paulo Coelho. Um, the world is not changed by your opinion; it is changed by your example. I've always liked uh, Mahatma Gandhi that said, "Be the change you want to see in the world." Right. Right. And I think you're right. When you take that uh, park ranger job, that uh, park historian, park interpreter, whatever it is, that you represent all those ideals. And if you don't actually know them or exemplify them, uh, one of the things we talk to interpreters about is don't step on your own story. Don't oh, yeah. Like selling the James Brown uh, album or book in the, the books. Yeah. It's your story is about a specific place or a specific time or a specific story. Be there, be consistent with it and exemplify it in every way you can. Um, you took 
a job I so envied at the end of your career. And I did because Lisa and I did an interpretive planning course at Omaha Beach with ABMC, the American Battles Monument Commission, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, you, you, you did great. Um, the American Battle Monument Commission, Monuments Commission is an organization, a federal agency that uh, actually it's a bureau because it has its own secretary who answers directly to the United, the president of the United States, uh, created by uh, General the Army's John Pershing himself, who led men in battle in World War I. And it turns out for both the First and Second World Wars, only about 60% of those killed went home. 40% stayed in, in Europe uh, or North Africa or wherever they found themselves, the Pacific. So this agency or bureau was put together to, at first, to control the proliferation of monuments because people were putting them up, you know, willy-nilly. And then it came to them to care for consolidated cemeteries, men and women were buried, often surrounded by the actual battlefields or on the battlefields themselves. Um, I had been 10 years uh, with the regional office in Denver doing diversity outreach work, but the kinds of things we talked about in terms of uh, human resources no longer that is their job. And Mr. Obama's interest in employing veterans, the special hiring authorities that we talked about earlier were no longer available. And it left me almost without a job. I don't think it was anybody's intent for that to happen, but it's how it worked out. So um, Chuck Hunt, a friend of mine who I'd worked with doing some pretty important stuff at Fort Davis National Historic Site, had already left the Park Service to go to the American Battle Monuments Commission. And um, I went on a trip uh, with our son because he was interested in World War II to visit some of those sites and to see some of Europe. And we stayed at Chuck's apartment. So he left the key under the door and we went and we'd already been in the field doing World War II living history in England. And we, um, got in, took a shower, started to wash some clothes, and Chuck called, and he said, uh, on the way home now, how'd you like to have a beer with some of the guys from the office? And I said, that sounds fine. So across the street from his apartment was an Irish pub in Paris, France. There you go. Irish pubs. And I went over, and the two fellas with Chuck were both from Human Resources, and they said, well, tell me who you are again, what you do. Well, I've been in the Park Service. A lot of my time has been interpretation, uh, but I'm doing diversity stuff right now. And you can just start to see the wheels turn in their heads. And they said, uh, they asked very specific questions and I didn't know where they were going. And finally they said, well, look, we want you to know that there is a chief of interpretation position open, but it closes Monday morning, wow. like Sunday midnight. And this was Friday afternoon. So I had to, to go back to Chuck's apartment, get on his computer, try to think of all the places I'd worked and all the people that I'd known and look up phone numbers when I could. It was probably the worst job application I'd ever filled out, but I got it done in time. My wife was very encouraging of, of me applying, although she wasn't sure about the France thing. But you know, given the fact that my job had changed, I needed something else to do. I was years from wanting to retire. 
by application went back to work. I've never been in tears more in a workshop in my life than to be at Omaha Beach and watch American soldiers coming back from Afghanistan who are up in, what is it, the German Rammstein or? Uh, the Rammstein Air Force Base, yeah. They would come down and pay homage to the World War II soldiers who lost their lives and to watch them out doing a color guard kind of thing, putting up the flag or taking it down. Uh, right. And some of the personal stories that went with that from Andy Anderson and various personnel there. Yep. Um, you you were there five years, so you actually put in quite a bit of time. I was, uh, I was five years, yeah. And and I had incredible experiences. I mean, there was, there was a lot of juggling going on because part of the job was was training them. And we got Geert Vanden Bogart uh, and uh, also uh, Jeffrey Arneo trained up as CIG instructors. So they were able to bring CIG to, to Europe. We, we set up an entire training location um, and they did it according to Hoyle. So that worked very well. Um, we were doing, I, I made it my point to do some auditing and coaching. I did some online training, uh, including an interpreter, one that's still available for free at the, on the Epley Institute website. Um, we did lots of exhibits, lots of visitor centers. Um, and there was just a lot of interaction, of course, because it was during the, the ramping up to the anniversary of World War I. There was a lot of work with the local French commission, the 1418 commission. So there was a lot to do. It was a very busy job. In fact, I took um, the fiddle that I'd purchased earlier to France, thinking, oh, I'll have plenty of time to practice. Didn't touch it once because I was really busy morning, noon, and night, a lot of weekends. My wife had to push me to, to actually go see some of Europe. I probably wouldn't have seen much, except that she said, you got to go see Europe while you're here, because there was so much work to be done. But, um, you know, luckily, I was able to build on work done by James Woolsey, who was there before me. And now Geert Vanden Bogart is there in the, in the job that I had and doing a wonderful job. Well, um, you being a sort of a talent scout was part of the job, too. You were on kind of a mission to build new visitor centers at several locations. Involved with seven of them in, in five years. And in the park service, you know, if you live to be 80, you might get one done. So we did uh, one in Italy, one in England, one in the Philippines, one in Belgium, uh, multiple ones in France. So there were a lot of those. And, and what's more... Um, I also was involved with historic furnishings. All of these cemeteries had what they call a family room, and they were designed to kind of replicate an American living room so the families of the fallen could commiserate and could remember together um, in an in in environment that looked and felt like home. Well, over time, they had become worn. And some of these cemeteries are from the, you know, after the First World War, some are from after the Second World War. A lot of the Second World War ones were, were kind of built in the 1960s. So um, some of the furniture was getting pretty old and worn out. And, um, and this sort of came from my historic you know, involvement with interpretation. Um, I said, I've got a little money to help you re replace in kind the furniture 
Um, but you've got to, you know, show me that you've done some research and it's it matches the, the the type and style and size. And one guy said, yeah, well, you know, I don't really, um, I'm thinking maybe new modern looking furniture. And I said, uh, you're kind of missing the point here, pal. This is about a specific freezing a place in time and space. He said, well, my wife doesn't really like that furniture. I said, your wife's not the superintendent of the cemetery. You know, if you ran Mount Vernon, would you go to Ikea to buy furniture? Well, no. Well, there you go. So there was a lot of, of, of were awkward simply because many of these folks had been in the military. They had been some of them non-commissioned officers. They were really good if you could give them orders, but they didn't always have the kind of executive function that a superintendent in a 21st century operation needed to have. Some stepped way up and did super well, some not so much. So there was a little, you know, horse trading going on there. Um, and some of the, I mean, I got along, I think, with all of them, but some of them, uh, we just clicked. And there was an opportunity at Musargon to redo that visitor center. And there were some sort of tactical issues, um, again, with this sort of patriotism first, as opposed to facts. Um, so when we got the first draft done, which was sort of a draft by committee, it went to uh, an American to translate. And I think it was a retired French teacher. And whatever came back was not very good. So it had to be redone in real French. But the, it was supposed to be the, the Great War was the name of the exhibit. Uh, instead of Le Grand Guerre, the Great War, it came back Le Guerre Super, the Super War. Uh, no, missed that one entirely. So the superintendent and I very quietly agreed to redo it ourselves. And that's what got produced. And it is a thousand times better than what had been there earlier, but very much better than what had been proposed. And it was sort of a guerrilla action. It was like, you know, on the set of glory, doing what would have been done instead of what they told us to do. What are you doing in retirement that you, that's, interpretive or that you still enjoy related to your profession as a park service guy and a ABMC chief? It's it's kind of it's kind of hard to stop. Um, I am involved with a number of Facebook pages where people are interested in history uh, and they include one in Spain and one in uh, Germany. So I, I get to do some of that. I'm still very heavily involved with Company B of the 54th Massachusetts. Uh, this week, I will have a, I'm leading a discussion about an African-American focus Civil War roundtable, which we're trying to stand up. Um, I may go to work soon for the state of California, specific to looking at living history interpretation. So there's a, I mean, I'm, I'm really sucking at retirement. This retirement thing is not good for me. It just, I'm, I'm, I'm busier now in some ways than I was when I was working. Well, the good thing is we both know is you can get up in the morning and decide not to be where you somebody else expects you to be, and you can pick and that choose. That is true. And, and of course, well, I was going to say with Zoom, a lot has been electronic, and there's no reason 
to, to not continue that. Um, I just stepped down oh, a few months ago from a three-year gig where I was an unpaid faculty member for the University of Missouri at St. Louis teaching uh, an EDD program that's called Heritage Leadership. And it has a lot to do with what we choose to remember, what we have to remember, the, 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 the sort of push-pull over history, um, and some of the really ugly bits in American history. Uh, for instance, one of the, the stories that comes up, uh, because it was, you know, out of St. Louis, is that St. Louis had this humongous swimming pool, which was put in for some sort of world fair. And when the laws changed, which prohibited discrimination based on race, the city fathers of St. Louis decided instead of sharing that opportunity, they filled the pool with concrete. So, so you know, so anyway, it, but it, it certainly has kept me um, engaged and involved. A lot of the value that I thought I brought to that operation really were stories from my interpretive past in which I was able to share things uh, from this country and other countries that related to history, heritage, and remembrance. Well, we teach uh, certified interpretive guide courses from our home, and uh, we use a poetry model that we developed when creating that course back for NAI. And the E in poetry is, uh, again, borrowed from Sam Ham's T-O-R-E. Uh, he says enjoyable. We always say enjoyable, but engaging. Point being, right. a lot of the stories we have to tell in interpretation are not are truly not enjoyable. They are sad. They are uh, tragic. They are uh, people hurting people for no good purpose. Right. Wars, genocide enslavement, whatever, but they are engaging. And I think people enjoy it to the extent that caring people want to understand. We're on a journey of trying to help people understand the world they live in, the other people they meet, the cultural. No, the, the, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we help people better understand the milieu in which they live. But you'll remember when you invited me to, to talk with those kids at the high school over on the Big Island, one of the things I said then and have said since is that the United States does not always hold up its promises, but it's a beautiful thing when they do. And those cemeteries overseas are a great example of what happens when a country believes what it says and does what it promised. Yeah, I was so impressed when... Uh... Andy Anderson told me that uh, he said it's inspiring here to watch a French seventh or eighth grader walk up to a 90 year old American veteran and thank them for their yeah. service in the war. And uh, French families are still teaching their children that took a lot of sacrifice from people not from France. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I used to, as a sort of a teaching tool, at Normandy would say to some of those interpreters that, you know, the free Europe started on this beach and, and that came at a cost. And we can't ignore the fact that that was violence and death and dismemberment. Um, there's just a lot of things like that, that, and that, but that's at the core of good living history. We actually, because of people's 
hesitancy to, to want to talk about violence, we actually got permission from the movie company that made Saving Private Ryan and were able to issue iPods, iPads, with um, five or 10 minutes of the opening of the, the Normandy landings. And we intentionally left out people like um, Tom Hanks. We didn't want a star to ruin, to detract attention. And so it's just sort of extras on the beach with the, with the fighting and the machine gunning and people use that to set the stage for the rest of their talk. It, 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 it might've been different if they could have gone there themselves, but you know, it, it's a current enough film. People are interested. They weren't distracted by you know, famous Hollywood actors. So it was one of the many tricks that we used. We also sent out something that was kind of patterned to look like a telegram. And of course, in the history of World War I, there's that Zimmerman telegram that uh, the Germans communicating to Mexico that if we if we win World War I and you help us, we'll give you Texas and New Mexico and Arizona back and California. And that really infuriated Americans. So we used a telegraph model and I would put out things, the interpretive equation or the poetry model that you talked about earlier, just little one page reminders of high quality interpretation. It wasn't a tome, it was just a one pager, sometimes not even a whole page. You also have a, is it a 12 commandments thing about living history? Where did that come from? Probably the two easiest things to do badly are museums and living history. It's easy to just, you know, tack something to the wall and call yourself a museum or dress up in some quote unquote funny clothes and say some stuff that, you know, but where'd you get it? And how do you know it's true? I think that the, the, the three big questions in, in, in history interpretation is, is this true? How do you know? And finally, what do you want me to do about it? Um, if you can't answer those questions, you might be going down the wrong road. And so these 12 points help people go, yeah, maybe I could do that a little different, a little better. Well, no, I'm doing pretty good. Bill, I remember you sharing with me your 12 points of living history. Would you give us a kind of a quick rundown of what those are? Because I think there would be of interest to anybody who works in that area of our field. Well, sure, Tim. And, and the truth of the matter is, they really apply almost as much to interpretation generally as they do to living history. And of course, living history is just one of the many tools in the toolbox. So the first one, and I don't know that I can take credit for having first said this, but I think it's very important. No interpretation at all is better than bad living history. I agree. The second one is the lack of sophisticated historical and interpretive thinking is at the heart of bad living history. If we think it's all play acting, we've already lost the fight. Living history has many facets, but four critical ones are the understanding of good interpretive principles and skills and visitor needs. Again, very much like interpretation generally. The development of first person specific interpretive principles, personas and skills, if in fact first person is the choice that you've made. Third, the appreciation of first rate historic clothing, gear, and equipment. And finally, the development of a sophisticated appreciation of the history of the place, the region, the nation, and the era. These are related to historic life skills and are based on the sociology, ideology, and technology of the period being interpreted. 
I go on to, to have a, the fourth point, training and certification in living history should be directly connected to the latest educational theory and best interpretive practices and is continually improved over time. This is not something that you can sort of cut dry and put on the shelf. When it comes to history, close enough ain't. Got it. Living history, more than any other aspect or form of interpretation, closely resembles a hobby. In this case, reenacting. It has had a long and sometimes tortured history, yet there is a wide and deep chasm between quality living history and most hobbyist activities and events. Number seven is enthusiasm for living history and expertise in public history are two very different things. Professional interpreters are wise to not confuse or conflate the two. Number eight suggests first-person living history is only one of many tools in a substantial interpretive toolbox. It is not always the most appropriate or most efficient methodology. Number nine suggests that some issues to specifically include political and racial histories or issues related to gender orientation or modern politics are typically not well handled using first-person history as an interpretive tool. That is to say, first-person interpretation. Uh, number 10, while in training classes and training scenarios, adaptations may have to be made to account for age, physical condition, and the interests of persons to learn skill sets not common to that particular group of people during the historical period being uh, interpreted. In general, reducing the expectations of the learner reduces the impact of historical skills being taught as well as lowering the interpretive sophistication being communicated. So really what I'm saying is you shouldn't teach women differently than you teach men. It, it's, it's silly to not have the same sort of practical expectations. Uh, number 11, without contextual preparation, living history and cultural interpretation cannot meet its full professional potential and obligation. That is to say that you've got to let visitors know what they're about to experience instead of playing that, you know, it's the 21st century, no, it's the 18th century game in which nobody really learns much. And finally, good living history, like any form of quality interpretation, is designed and delivered in ways to be appropriate for the audience and provides a clear focus for their connection with the resource by demonstrating the cohesive development of a relevant idea or ideas, rather than relying primarily on the recital of a chronological narrative or a series of related facts. So here endeth the lesson. Thanks for sharing that. One quick question. I know that you've put great effort in exemplifying those points throughout your career. Have you have you any other program or programs that you can quickly say, I think these guys do it right? Um, there is a group in England of all places called Past Pleasures Limited that does an incredible job. Um, but they are probably, gosh, they would separate themselves, I think, into sort of four baskets. The first one being good public history. The yeah. second one being good interpretation. The third one being an intense focus on historical clothing and, and equipments. And the fourth kind of on acting. And I say that in the best possible use of the term. So you've got these sort of four buckets 
and all together they make for an outstanding presentation. They are, however, very narrowly focused on the Elizabethan period of English history. Uh, and they are contracted to work at many of the castles uh, that still exist, of course, in England. So that's uh, one example. Uh, there are certainly American examples too, but I think that tension between living history as a hobby and living history as professional interpretation is sadly one of the things that 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 makes it a more difficult problem to solve in the United States. Right. Well, thanks for sharing all that. We all watch TV, uh, right. internet. Uh, both are entertaining and engaging. Doesn't necessarily mean they're teaching us something. Sometimes they're absolutely teaching us a, a history that didn't happen or wishful things. Um, well, I mean, you, and that's interesting you bring it up on this day because today is Juneteenth. Yeah. It is a day rooted in history where the, the, the Union forces are able to finally bring the news of freedom to enslaved persons in Texas who technically were already free, but people decided, let's see how many more crops we can get out of these people before it becomes known. What you see as you go that is that people have gone in almost every direction possible except the historical one. Um, the Civil War doesn't seem to matter. There's a lot of popular culture. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of celebration. And that's all great. It's not my job to tell people how to create or change traditions. But if it starts in history, you would like to think history would continue to have a major role. And that's not always the way we we come at things in this country. Uh, we, popular culture very often dominates the conversation. And uh, well, I trust that you're going to keep doing in retirement what you did in, in your career, which is inspire people to think more deeply about how they approach history, how they approach diversity. But I will say that when it comes to sort of history and honesty and research, um, I'm reminded of the old saw that the only thing worse than finding a worm in your apple is finding half a worm in your apple. That's a very clear metaphor. I'm there. <laughs> Bill, thanks again. It's been a fascinating two hours. I know that our listeners are probably going, they talked for two hours, uh, not knowing that when we get together, we can talk for 10 hours. So I appreciate the wisdom you've shared about the interpretive profession, about your career, because you, you've had a very different journey than a lot of other people. and. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in March when we go to Tanzania. Outstanding. Well, Tim, thanks to you. The, the truth is that this is a profession that has so many bits and pieces. Um, it, it, it helps you to grow. And as somebody once said, if you're not changing, you're not growing. And interpretation helps both the interpreter and the visitor to change and grow. Great. Well, take care, my friend. Adios. Aloha. And please join us on July 14th for a talking story with Ren Smith, Interpretive Programs Manager at Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest, and an old friend and a great trainer.
Thanks to Mark Stoffel for the beautiful mandolin work on Heidi's World from his 101 album. Join us for an interpretive planning workshop with Lisa Brochu via Zoom, August 21st to 24th from 8 to 11 a.m. And you can register at heartfeltassociates.com. And thanks for joining us today. Have a wonderful day. Aloha. Aloha.